so often throughout the course of history. Patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. Man, more and more, it feels like you got to be a disciple, right? It takes a level of commitment. If you're going to be a free individual in this day and age, it is not going to be easy coasting. You don't, it's not, you know, you don't just come over the edge of the hill and coast to the bottom. No, you got to, you have got to be committed and, and it's getting, uh, you know, it's getting tougher as we go, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, if you understand the, the value of, of freedom, if you understand the price that people have been willing to pay to secure it historically, suddenly it's, it comes into focus and it's like, okay, it's worth it. But the sad thing is a lot of people have been persuaded to you know, set their freedom aside. No, you need security. You need security way more than you need to be free. Why? Because, because you know, we need to look for the greatest good, which conveniently ignores the fact that freedom is the greatest good. It is the greater good. Because it enables people to make their own choices and not be some object that's, you know, at the whim of someone else or, or some institution. Anyway, let's dive right in. Look, I'm assuming the fact that you are listening to the America Out Loud Network, the fact you're, that you're listening to this program, is a really good indicator that uh, you value your freedom on some level. In fact, you're probably uh, maybe, we'll say, a little more assertive than others when it comes to defending your freedom. And that's good. It's helpful every so often to, to go back to the basics, to go back to the principles and the practices that undergird freedom. I mean, freedom itself is a great thing. We all enjoy it, right? We like to be able to make choices without some form of coercion looming over us. You will do this or else. But to really understand its value, you've got to understand what what those who came before you have seen. I mean, I I laugh when I see the meme, but I also think there's a lot of truth to this meme that shows um, kind of an X, Y axis. The more you you know about history is in inverse proportion to the degree to which you trust government. And I know that may sound a little formulaic or a little, you know, simplified, but... I think it's true. There's a lot of mischief that's done at the hands of government. And you don't have to have a grudge or be carrying a grudge to recognize that over the last couple of years, the relationship between the government and the people has dramatically changed. And I mean, on many levels. Now, that's just the latest in a long series of developments. Judge Andrew Napolitano actually has a really great commentary spelling out some of the chilling lessons, not just of COVID-19, but actually of the last 100 years. He says, During the past 18 months, the relationship of the American people to the government has changed radically as the Constitution's failure to restrain the federal and state governments and protect personal liberty 
has become manifest. Now, don't mistake what he's saying here, which I believe is factual. Don't mistake that for this guy must hate the Constitution or he must hate freedom. I think he's just he's looking at uh, the reality of what's in front of us right now. The Constitution poses no threat to government, at least as it exists right now. Judge Napolitano says, we know that for the past 100 years, the growth of the federal government has been exponential. And we know that while formally the Constitution still exists, functionally, it has failed miserably. As the deterioration of personal liberty since the spring of 2020 has been as grave as the losses of freedom in the past 100 years. Now, he says, I'm using this 100 years as a benchmark because it marks the completion of the federal government's takeover by the Theodore Roosevelt Republicans and the Woodrow Wilson Democrats, who collectively comprised the progressive movement. In a short 15 years, this movement brought us the useless World War I, the destructive popular election of senators, the corrupt Federal Reserve, and the theft of property called the income tax and the unconstitutional administrative state. Now think about what we got from each of those bargains, right? Progress. We must move forward into new uncharted territories that don't include limits on government power. So you have a war that killed millions for naught. The popular election of senators undermined state sovereignty. The Federal Reserve destroyed economic freedom. The federal income tax legalized theft. And the administrative state created an unconstitutional fourth branch of government with experts in quotation marks, answerable to no one. Yet the iron fist of totalitarian government visited upon the American people in the name of COVID-19 has struck at the heart of the Constitution and landed heavy blows on average Americans in far more acute and direct ways. And Judge Napolitano says, here's the backstory. So here are the principles that underlie what's at stake here. When Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence in 1776, that our rights, wrote in there, that our rights come from God via our humanity. He and his colleagues set the 13 colonies on a path toward a limited government based upon the consent of the governed. Now, the Declaration proclaimed that the sole moral function of government is to protect life, liberty, and property. In 1776, the colonial governments here consisted of governors appointed by the British king and popularly elected legislatures chosen by the adult, white, landowning males who bothered to vote. Now, he says, I say bothered to vote because the colonists knew that the legislatures were largely subject to the governors. The same colonists who supported the idea of secession hated the colonial governors as, mo- as more frequently as they more frequently bypassed the legislatures and just issued edicts that they then enforced as if they were law. Now, this practice of issuing gubernatorial edicts became so unpopular, 10 of the 13 colonies amended their constitutions in 1776 and 1777 to define more precisely the principle of the separation of powers. Napolitano says the history of the revolutionary period reflects two wars. One, a war of violence against the king's soldiers, and also a war of ideas to persuade reluctant colonists of the value of personal liberty. The principal instrument of the war of ideas was the one that James Madison embedded into the Constitution in 1787, that is, the separation of powers. Now, Napolitano says the separation of powers, which the late Justice Antonin Scalia called the backbone of the American Constitution, mandates that only the legislature writes laws. Only the executive can enforce them. 
and only the judiciary can interpret them. So the immediate purpose of that separation is to enable any one of the branches to be a check on the other two. So by tension and even jealousy, no one branch could exceed the powers granted to it by the Constitution. If the president wrote laws, well, the courts would invalidate them. If Congress interpreted laws, the president and the courts would ignore it. If the courts hired people to enforce laws, Congress would not fund their salaries. The ultimate purpose of the separation is to prevent tyranny and thereby preserve liberty. Now, to assure that the separation of powers worked at the state level, Madison wrote the Guarantee Clause into the Constitution. And the Supreme Court has ruled that it guarantees the same separation of powers in the states as is required of the feds. Simply, it says they will have a Republican form of government. Now, back to the horrors of the past 18 months. Andrew Napolitano says during that time, hundreds of edicts have been issued by mayors and governors, a few by former President Donald Trump and President Biden. None has the force of law, and each is a legal nullity for the simple reason that only legislatures can enact standards of behavior that carry punishments for noncompliance, otherwise known as laws. So what about the legislature of New York, which gave away some of its powers to the governor? Well, that too is unconstitutional, as the Supreme Court has ruled that branches of government cannot cede away or exchange powers, and when they do so, it is a legal nullity. So he says, I'm not surprised when the government thumbs its nose at the Constitution that its agents and officers have sworn to uphold and the legal theories upon which it's based. After all, the Constitution was written to keep the government off people's backs. No wonder government hates it. He says, I'm surprised and terrified when the great mass of people acts as sheep when they reject the values of America's founding documents. And they ignore the history and the courage that's undergirded personal liberty in our once free society. He says, let's get this straight. The executive branch of the federal government and nearly all states has told Americans how to live, dress, work, travel, attend church, run their businesses, and control their bodies in defiance of the Constitution. And the people, yearning for a more yearning more for a false sense of security than the reality of freedom, bowed down and said yes. And he asked some tough questions at this point. Does the government work for us or do we work for the government? Do we still have a functional constitution? Can freedom so bitterly fought for and arduously won be this easily dissipated? Napolitano says the answers to these questions are too repugnant for this American who weeps for liberty to articulate. I don't mean to sound all dramatic and everything. I guess maybe if I played some dramatic music in the background, this would, would set the mood for it. But this is why if you want to enjoy the blessings of liberty, if you want to enjoy the birthright that that founding generation was trying to give to all those, everybody who would follow in their footsteps. You can't just be a cheerleader. You can't just be like, yeah, raw, the Constitution, it's good. I mean, everybody starts somewhere. But what I'm suggesting is you got to be, for lack of a better phrase, a disciple of liberty. You've got to be the kind of person who seeks not just to to understand what the founders said, but why they said that. Why did they lean in that direction? What did they draw upon? What were the original sources they went to to inform their understanding of why freedom mattered? And this isn't to make yourself, you know, that much more impressive when you get together for your next game of Trivial Pursuit or, you know, to to make you a star on Jeopardy. 
This is just the amount of effort that a person who is serious about securing his or her liberty would go to in order to understand the principles and the practices upon which that liberty is founded and is based, in which, without which you can't have it. So I appreciate Judge Napolitano. I know it's, it, it's kind of a, a little bit of a downer tone there, but the reality of what's looking us in the face and especially the reality of what we've had to deal with over the last couple of years... These are serious times. I want I want to be, you know, I want to be carefree and laugh it away. Ha <laughs> ha, you know, this is it's really not that big of a deal, but no, it's it's a big deal. And it's time for for us to to be certain of who we are and what we stand for, more so than just who or what we're against. I hope that makes sense. I'm going to shift gears now. Speaking of who or what we're against, um because of the recent uh, January 6th anniversary I actually encouraged friends, and I took this advice myself, stay away from the television on January 6th. And it sounds like that was actually a wise move because uh, the, the press corps as well as the political class, my goodness, they, they, were, they were performing like it was sweeps week. Oh, the pageantry and the, the somberness and the, the emoting, and the, the melodrama. And, you know, here's the funny thing. You can still believe that uh, what happened January 6th, that the U.S. Capitol was inappropriate and should not have taken place without dismissing that, uh, you know, it was an insurrection. We hear that word used so much, and, and I don't think it's a matter to try and convince us. I mean, the strongest evidence that I've seen that it was, in fact, not an insurrection. I wasn't there, but I do know people who were there personally who have told me the number of people who went to the Capitol was very small compared to the hundreds of thousands of people there for, you know, the rally and for Trump's speech. However misguided you may think it may be, you know, to to cry foul over this election, I think it's a perfectly legitimate thing for a person to say, I don't have confidence that we know everything that that happened. And and the fact that there are people telling me, you're not even allowed to ask about it. Well, that doesn't exactly inspire confidence, because I would think someone with the truth on their side would say, absolutely. Come and look to your heart's content. Let the truth speak for itself. But they're like, no, 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 you can't even do you will undermine our democracy if you if you suggest that (laughs) there was anything wrong. So what we're supposed to believe, at least if I'm following this narrative correctly, you know, maybe I'm not. I I could be slow sometimes. Is that uh, Donald Trump angry over an election that he perceived was not rightly run, won by the ever-popular, you know, Joseph Biden, who ran with, you know, all the charisma of a weak-old bowl of oatmeal left out on the table. If, if Donald Trump wasn't happy with that, apparently he riled up a bunch of his supporters to go in and overthrow democracy in America, to take over the government. An insurrection. And yet the facts just don't add up. They just don't. How many people did the insurrectionists kill? Zero. How many weapons did they bring into the Capitol? Zero. Huh. (laughs) One thing that I have come to appreciate is there are journalists out there that still will tell the truth. Glenn Greenwald is one of them. And uh, Glenn explains that the histrionics and melodrama around January 6th are laughable, but they do have several key purposes. He says the number of people killed by pro-Trump supporters 
at the January 6th Capitol riot is equal to the number of pro-Trump supporters who brandished guns or knives inside the Capitol. And that is the same number as the total of Americans who, after a full year of Democrat-led DOJ conducting what's heralded as the most expansive federal law enforcement investigation in U.S. history, have been charged with inciting insurrection, sedition, treason, or conspiracy to overthrow the government as a result of of that riot one year ago. Coincidentally, it is the same number of Americans who ended up being charged criminally by the Mueller probe rather, of conspiring with Russia over the 2016 election. And the number of wounds, grave or light, which AOC, who finally emerged at night to assure an on-edge nation that she was okay while waiting in an office building away from the riot at the Rotunda, sustained on that solemn day. I mean, by now, you should, you should be able to pick up. The number is zero. But Glenn Greenwald says just just as these rather crucial facts don't prevent the dominant wing of the U.S. corporate media and Democratic Party leaders from continuing to insist that Donald Trump's 2016 election victory was illegitimate due to his collusion with the Kremlin, it also doesn't prevent January 6th from being widely described in these same circles as an insurrection or an attempted coup, an event as traumatizing as Pearl Harbor. Uh, You remember with 2,403 dead or the 9-11 attack. 2,977 dead. And it's the gravest attack on American democracy since the mid-19th century Civil War. 750,000 dead. Now, the Huffington Post's White House reporter, S.V. Date, said it was wrong to compare 1-6 to 9-11 because the former, that three-hour riot at the Capitol, was 1,000% worse. Glenn Greenwald says, indeed, when it comes to melodrama, histrionics, and exploitation of fear levels from the 1-6 riot, there's never been any apparent limit. And with the one-year anniversary of that three-hour riot, there is no apparent end in sight. He says, too many political and media elites are far too invested in this maximalist narrative for them to relinquish it voluntarily. Now, he, I believe he wrote this on... January 6th, when he says, the orgy of psychodrama today was so much worse and more pathetic than I expected, and I expected it to be extremely bad and pathetic. House Democrats waited their turn on the House floor to talk to Dick Cheney as a beacon for American democracy, reported CNN's Edward Isaac Dover. One by one, Democrats are coming over to introduce themselves to former VP Dick Cheney and shake his hand, added ABC News' Ben Siegel. Nancy Pelosi gravely introduced Lin-Manuel Miranda and the cast of Hamilton to sermonize and sing about the importance of American democracy. The Huffington Post's senior politics reporter Igor Bobich unironically expressed gratitude for the four-legged emotional support professionals roaming the Capitol this week, helping officers, staffers, and reporters alike, meaning therapy dogs. Glenn Greenwald says yesterday, CNN's Kai's Hunt announced, tomorrow is going to be a tough one for those of us who were there or had loved ones in the building. Thinking of all of you and finding strength, knowing I'm not alone in this. Unsurprisingly, but still repellently, Kamala Harris compared 162-911. Now, Glenn Greenwald says, look, the, the January, that the January 6th riot was some sort of serious attempted insurrection or coup was laughable from the start. And it's become even more preposterous with the passage of time and the emergence of more facts. The United States is the most armed, militarized, and powerful regime in the history of humanity. The idea that a thousand or so Trump supporters, largely composed of Gen X and boomers, who had been locked in their homes during a pandemic, three of whom were so physically infirm that they dropped dead from the stress, posed anything approaching a serious threat to overthrow the federal government of the United States of America, 
Glenn Greenwald says that's such a self-evidently ludicrous assertion that any healthy political culture would instantly expel someone suggesting it with a straight face. He says putting the events of January 6th into their proper perspective is not to dismiss the fact that it was a lamentable event. Any more than opposing the exploitation of 9-11 and exaggeration of the domestic threat of Muslim, ex- Muslim extremism which he says he spent a full decade doing, which meant that one was uh, somehow denying the heinousness of that attack. Greenwald says, The day after the 1-6 riot, I wrote in this space, quote, that the introduction of physical force into political protest is always lamentable, usually dangerous, and except in the rarest of circumstances that are plainly inapplicable here, unjustifiable. And he says, I still believe that to be the case. There's nothing virtuous about the 1-6 riot. But it is typically the case that fear-mongering and deliberate exaggeration of threats has an element of truth to them. Al-Qaeda and ISIS really did want to carry out mass casualty events on U.S. soil. COVID is a fatal virus that can kill people, and has done so around the world. There are right-wing extremists in the U.S. bent on using violence to advance their political agenda, just as there are left-wing extremists and anarchist insurrectionary movements and many other types eager to do the same. He also points out more destruction was caused by the latter than the former over the past two years to say nothing of the dozens of journalists physically assaulted by individuals participating in Antifa protests. Far too many centers of political and economic power benefit from an exaggerated and even false narrative about January 6th to expect it ever to end. So, what can you and I do about that, right? Okay, well, I can sit here and I can complain... Yes, that is that is a possibility. That, and that may very well be what I'm doing, but I'm also going to try to offer some constructive suggestions here. So here goes. <laughs> if, it, if it doesn't fit, you don't have to consider this. But obviously, if this is the level to which uh, corporate mass media has stooped, if it's that detached from reality, I don't think I'm really missing out on anything by um, largely eliminating it from my my intellectual diet or at least what I feed myself to understand what's going on in the world. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to bury my head in the sand, and it doesn't mean that, you know, I'm just going to stick my fingers in my ears and shut my eyes and start chanting so it can't break through any of my senses. I guess what it means is I have the opportunity here to choose more carefully what is going to actually provide value in terms of information that I'm using to better understand the world around me. I mean, it's good to know what uh, your opponent is up to. And clearly, these people have put themselves in uh, an adversarial position to anyone who loves freedom. Whether it be the politicians that are taking advantage and, you know, doing all these histrionics and melodrama, or the media that's, that's providing them a stage upon which to perform. All I can say is, it's on you and me to choose with care, the voices that we give our attention to, much less, you know, would consider giving allegiance to. And I'd be very cautious of any voice that says, hey, give me your allegiance. I'd be much more trusting of of those who would say, weigh the information, you know, let's have as open and honest a discussion as possible, but ultimately, your choice is where your allegiance should go. I don't have a right to it. And nobody has a right to tell you that you have to to give them your allegiance. If there was a time to choose carefully, I think it's right now. 
So find the good information sources. And, and I'm going to throw one other spin at you here, too. This is just, here's the curveball you didn't see coming. Consider becoming one of those information sources. Okay, not everybody has access to a big platform. Not everybody, you know, has access to a big microphone to, to get the message out. But I would suggest if at some level you feel that there's, it's, it's more than just an interest. It almost feels like a call, right? A calling that the universe is sending to you saying, you need to stand up. You're not supposed to just sit back and uh, try to blend into the crowd. You need to stand up and speak the truth. Then you should do that. And it's hard. And you're, you're going to have to start small and be content with not changing everyone and everything at the same time. But then again, I have to believe at some level, you know, Joe Rogan, when he started his little podcast, probably didn't know where it was going to go. And 11 million listens per episode? He's doing okay. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. Healthy Cell makes a wonderful line of products, and I want to spend just a minute with you on REM sleep. Do you know Healthy Cell's product has calming herbs, amino acids, minerals, and sleep hormone support for the four-stage human sleep cycle? Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and achieve REM or rapid eye movement sleep. Through the phases, fall asleep easily. That component of sleep is favorably impacted by melatonin, lemon balm extract, and GABA, lowering the body temperature. That element is influenced by glycine, magnesium, and calcium. Deep lasting sleep, L-theanine, vitamin D3, and vitamin B6. And finally, creativity boosting REM sleep. 5-HTP, vitamin B6, and GABA. Many of us think we need to sleep because we're short on sleep, but we need quality sleep. So please consider Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement. I have one tonight, and I'm going to have a much better night's sleep if I uh, compared to if not taking it. So go to uh, HealthyCell.com, and in the promo box, uh, type in out loud, and that'll give you a 20% uh, discount off your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11, a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years, and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show. And thank you for being a listener and a supporter of the America Out Loud Network. I hope you're paying close attention to who the sponsors are and to taking time to do business with them. 
So I want to I want to give well I want to share a topic here that uh, that I have found makes people extremely uncomfortable. And that doesn't mean in any way that you are stupid or you're somehow beneath me because haha, you know I made you uncomfortable. It's just that we're kind of trained to think in terms of you know this things have to be a certain way and without this everything is doomed. Paul Rosenberg actually says it like this. He says, you always know you're venturing into interesting territory when you arouse defenses like, well, because, or you're an idiot and everyone knows. He says, such are the defenses that pop up when touching the concept of justice separate from the state. Sorry, I should have warned you. Could you want to take a seat before I tell you what the topic is? Yeah, it's justice without the state. Paul Rosenberg says, it was in my experience something of a verboten subject considered ridiculous and rude at the same time. But again, he says, in my personal experience, that was something everyone just knew was impossible and which they also knew was dangerous. And yet they had no real reasons to uphold those opinions. Now, certainly they struggled to assemble reasons once I said, well, I don't think so. Humans are really good at that. But he says it was very clear that the decision was made first and the facts assembled second. And he says, I was thrust into this subject quite a few years ago as cypherpunk projects ran into the reality that humans are unfinished creatures and sometimes end up in disputes with each other. Once cyberspace appeared, he says quite a few of us realized that it was kind of a Terra Nova, the first new continent opening since 1492 or 1606 for Australia. We wanted to do something good with it, something better than the territorial overlords were doing to humanity. So he says, to give you some feel for the moment, Here's a passage from J.P. Barlow's Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace, published back in 1996. Governments of the industrial world, you weary giants of flesh and steel, I come from cyberspace, the new home of mind. On behalf of the future, I ask you of the past to leave us alone. You are not welcome among us. You have no sovereignty where we gather. So with a separation imperative in mind, we were confronted with the fact that some kind of law or justice was necessary. And Paul Rosenberg says, that's why I started digging into the subject. And he says, what I found was that justice without state was common throughout history. And more than that, it seemed to have worked quite well over long periods of time. Now that seems utterly impossible to any mind that's gone through the modern school curriculum, but the facts remain, no matter how many knees may jerk at the thought. So, here briefly, he says, are some of the instances that he found. The first one is the Greek Reset and the early Hebrews. Now, about 1200 BC, nearly every civilization in the eastern Mediterranean was plucked out by the roots. Egypt barely survived. And then for some 400 years, government was all but absent and cultures reset. This is commonly called the Dark Ages of the Greeks. During this period... Greek law was non-existent, and justice was handled almost on a family level. Now, we haven't a great deal of written matter from the Greeks, but we do from early Hebrew civilization, which thrived during this period of time. The early Hebrews, for some number of centuries, were a tribal anarchy with no state at all. Aside from their religious rules, from religious rules, rather, their laws amounted to don't lie, steal, or kill. Don't oppress the weak. Don't speak derogatorily of others. Don't take revenge. And don't hold a grudge. And they were far more interested in justice than in law. For example, we find these passages in their earliest writings. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Justice, justice, shalt thou pursue. 
Next, you have the example of the early medievals. After the fall of Rome, Europe had its reset period, and during this time, many towns of Europe all developed and enforced their own justice. As historian R.H.C. Davis writes, even the law might change from village to village. A 13th century judge pointed out that in the various counties, cities, boroughs, and townships of England, he always had to ask what was the local customary law and how was it employed before he could successfully try a case. Historian Chris Wickham explains that what these people did then provides a nice example from a French town. When disputes were dealt with, it was the villagers who reached judgment. They also acted as oath-swearers for the disputing parties, as sureties to ensure that losers accepted defeat. In one notable case of uh, 858, in the plebs of Trill, a man named Anu had tried to kill Anu Hoyorn, I don't know how to say this guy's name, a priest of the monastery of Ridon, and had to give a vineyard to Ridon in compensations as an alternative to losing his right hand. Now here, six sureties were named and could kill him if he tried such a thing again. Most judgment finders and sureties were peasants, because the villages around Redon policed themselves. So even the hard case of attempted murder was dealt with quite well by the locals of a Dark Ages town in rural France. There's absolutely no reason to believe that we couldn't do as well. Then you have the Veem. By about 900 AD, the people of Westphalia, now Germany, were operating in their own justice system, even though there were, at least intermittently, princes in the area who wouldn't like it. Running what they called Veem courts, they issued warnings to troublemakers, issued warrants, and occasionally had to execute someone. Now, the Veem did have secret trials, but only as necessary. Their meeting places were always known to the locals, and they never used torture, even though the princes did. The Veem was taken over by the state in 1180 A.D. Well, they had a good run for a couple of hundred years anyway. Then you have Lex Mercatoria. The great medieval trade fairs had their own system of justice called the Lex Mercatoria, or Law Merchant. Separate from state justice, it operated quite well over a long period of time. Eventually, however, states took it over and more or less rolled it into their own systems of laws. You also have Jewish health or self-rule, rather. As historian Paul Johnson writes in A History of the Jews, the Jews always ran their own schools, courts, hospitals, and social services. They appointed and paid for their own officials, rabbis, judges. Wherever they were, the Jews formed tiny states within states. Under less-than-hospitable conditions, Jewish self-rule, including the provision of justice, thrived from the fall of Rome until just the past few centuries. Here's another example of justice without the state, arbitration. Right now, arbitration, more properly known as Alternative Dispute Resolution, or ADR, is thriving as an alternative to state justice, which has become so expensive and cumbersome as to be impractical. This is true for high-end commerce, for labor disagreements, and down to the level of disputes among construction, construction contractors. So alternative dispute resolution works very well, and it's often far less expensive than government justice. It's restricted only by governments who enforce specific limits. Last but not least, he says, is the Internet. Right now, there are quite a few Internet arbitration providers, and they stand in a fairly murky area, but the states haven't clamped down on them yet. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I haven't had any experience with them, but so far as I know, they provide good service. And compared to what? Well, he says, whenever something new comes along, like providing justice outside of state power, people instinctively look for flaws in it. And then finding even one, they leap to the conclusion, well, see, then it won't work, will it? 
But the truth is that the current systems of laws are full of flaws from end to end. I mean, think about it. They're corruptly applied. Laws are bought and sold. Oh, come on. That shouldn't surprise you, right? What, what, how much influence do you think the average person has in shaping public policy? I'm not going to say it's absolutely zero, but it's, it's a lot less than the uh, special interests, particularly the moneyed special interests and lobbyists seem to have. Money talks. Money buys influence. And influence goes a long way when you, you know, have the uh, loyalty or the allegiance of a particular lawmaker. Also, the current systems of law are insanely expensive and in many cases unforgivably slow. And perhaps worse, Paul Rosenberg says, they change with every new session of the legislature. I know when I lived in Utah, it was, uh, I think, 500 laws, new laws, were proposed on average every year. Now, Brian, come on, only a fraction of those ever get passed. That's true, but hey, even a fraction of 500... Ain't exactly chump change when you're talking about the state getting more deeply involved in people's lives. So, if we're to take perfection as a standard, the point that Paul Rosenberg is making here is that state-provided justice fails, and it fails very badly. Now, having given you a quick overview of non-state justice, he says, the question remains as to why so many modern people are so biased against the very concept. And to answer that question, he says, I at least partly answered that question, I leave you with a short passage from Carl Jung's The Undiscovered Self. Jung says, in order to turn the individual into a function of the state, his dependence on anything beside the state must be taken from him. I mean, that should be some pretty fertile ground for reflection or maybe food for thought. I'm just suggesting maybe this would be a good way to approach it. There's a little thing out there called agorism. Maybe you've heard me mention it before. If not, I'll give you the, the, the layman's definition, at least the one that sticks in my mind, is it's about reducing your governmental footprint. I mean, it's all the rage to reduce your carbon footprint, but I'm just going to say, from one freedom lover to another, if you want to be free, you've got to learn how to reduce your governmental footprint. And agorism is essentially you live as freely as you possibly can. Now, I'm not encouraging anybody to break any laws, but I'm also not encouraging you, go to the government with your hat in your hand and ask for permission any time you want to do something. I have a good friend who uh, is starting up uh, a podcast, and I believe he does some voiceover work as well. But for his podcast, I mean, he look, he's a stand-up guy. And he wants to do it right. But he was asking me, well, do you think I ought to get a business license? Do you think I ought to do this? And I'm just... Until you know you are required to get a business license, I would say no. Now, of course, you know, I would also encourage you, ask somebody who's well-versed in business law and who understands, you know, you ask your tax preparer, does this give you any advantage? But above all, have the attitude of, I don't need to go and beg permission every time I want to do something. I know there are people who've been taught to think, well, that's just, you know, they're looking out for our good. You don't, you don't want some unlicensed person cutting your kid's hair? I don't know, man. You know, we had bad haircuts as kids, and frankly, our moms were all unlicensed, you know, cosmetologists cutting our hair. But as long as no harm is done, I don't care. Occupational licensing tends to to do two things. It converts what would normally be your God-given right to go out there and earn a living into a privilege which you pay the state to let you exercise. 
I'm sorry, that just doesn't seem right to me. But it also has the the power of, of converting you into a subject of whatever system happens to be in power at that time. I had a very famous exchange, at least in my mind, in my, in my life history. Um, I was going back and forth with someone, I think it was from a Workman's Compensation Fund, or I, I want to say it was, it was a Workman's Comp office in a state in which I once resided, which I'm not going to be any more specific than that. But they had sent me paperwork for a part-time writing gig that I was doing, and, and I'm just going to tell you, any time you get paid to write is wonderful. So I think I was making you know a couple hundred bucks a month in writing columns. And, and I loved it. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to make it sound like you know, it was such a burden. It was a great opportunity. But when this, when this functionary of the state came to me and said, yes, we, uh, we need you to fill out a form and pay us a $50 fee to see if you are subject to, you know, us uh, regulating you in the capacity in which you are, you know, serving the, the company that I was writing for as an independent contractor. We, we believe you may be an employee. And I don't want to sound cheap, but at the same time, I was like, come on. You want me to pay you 50 bucks to tell me whether or not uh, I needed to pay you that 50 bucks? That sounds, that sounds like a sucker's bet. Double my IQ or no money back? Oh, sure. I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. So I asked the guy very point blank. I'm like, look, I've never been into the, I, I've never so much as been to the office of the entity for which I was writing. I've done it totally from home, totally from my laptop. He's like, it doesn't matter. You, you still need to fill out the form. You need to send in the 50 bucks so we can tell you whether or not you need to, uh, you know, whether or not we can, whether or not we need to issue you a waiver, meaning we, you don't have to be under our regulatory control. And I finally just told him, look, am I, do you know that I am subject to your regulatory control? Do you know it for a fact? And he says, no, we need, to, we need to find out. I'm like, look, if you can't tell me definitively that you know, then the answer is no. So thank you. You've saved me some money. You've saved me some time. And boy, he got indignant. Oh, well, you, you can't just, you know, walk away from this, you know. You need to file that form and you need to apply for that waiver. And, and I just told him, no, thank you. I don't want what you're selling. Now, look, that's not for everybody. Maybe I was a jerk for doing so. It's possible. But there was a larger principle here than me trying to save 50 bucks. Why would I pay some bureaucrat to tell me whether or not I need him to exercise authority over me? He himself could not quote any part of the law or any part of the the, um, regulations that made it clear that I was under his jurisdiction. I don't know. Maybe it was a stupid tax. I'm hoping I passed the test and didn't pay the stupid tax. But he finally, well, you know, we may have to come after the, your employer there and garnish your wages if necessary. At which point I told him, you know what? It's a $200 a month job. I would walk away from it before I would ever allow you to take a penny from me. Now I know this is, wow, you really stood on principle. How hard it must have been. But do you not see that there there is a principle there of, of just... Why does the state need to, to assert itself over so many aspects of, of everybody's lives? And, and people voluntarily put themselves under it. So I'm suggesting maybe we, uh, we figure out how we solve problems without the state, you know, wherever possible. And we learn that uh, we can really do this. It's not that hard. Now, I want to segue from here 
into, uh, obviously, this is a topic that can make people uncomfortable, justice without the state, but I want to share with you some thoughts from Doug Casey, an interview he did with International Man, with an enlightening take on the fake, on the, I'm sorry, the failures of the justice system, as well as a viable solution. And he, too, is talking privatization. I just, I want you to know this in case you need smelling salts or anything. So, International Man asks, what is the role of a justice system in a society and what should the state have to do with it? Doug Casey responds, in my view, what really holds a society together isn't the laws enacted by legislatures or dictators, but peer pressure, social opprobrium, and moral approbation. In general, he says, society is pretty well self-regulating. It's why people pay their bills at restaurants, even though there's not a cop at the door. Criminals are the exception, not the rule, although it must be said they naturally gravitate towards government. When somebody commits a crime, there's a trial to determine what harm has been done, who should be compensated, and so forth. Courts determine these things, but he says, I'd like to argue that the state is not a necessary part of any of this. Society, like markets, tends to be self-ordering. With a minimal night watchman sort of state like that described by Ayn Rand, the proper role of government is to simply defend you from force and fraud. This implies an army to defend you from force external to your society, a police force to defend you from force within your society, and a court system to allow the adjudication of disputes without resorting to force. Now he says, I could live in a, in a society like that, and it would be a vast improvement over what we have now. A proper court system with either arbitrators or judges or jury system would be part of it. But he says, I'd go on to argue that juries and courts should be privatized. Which prompts the question, okay, well, what would a privatized system look like? Would it have juries? Doug Casey says there might be either arbitrators or juries or both. The jury should be comprised of, or composed rather, of independent thinkers who aren't easily swayed by rhetoric or pressured by groupthink. Today, however, they're just random people who aren't clever enough to avoid jury duty. In theory, juries can counter the tremendous power of judges. Judges today are either elected or appointed. If elected, they have to campaign just like any other politician and are subject to the same perverse incentives any other politician is. If they're appointed, it can be even worse. Appointees are often just collecting political favors, and while they're allegedly more independent, in many ways they're even less accountable. So in theory, a jury is a good counterbalance to the power of the judge. You need some way to weigh the facts and decide who's in the right. But the way juries work in the U.S. today is far from optimal. It used to be that a jury could easily overturn any law. The process was called jury nullification, and it was an effective way for the common people to keep legislators under control. But today, he says, it's really a dead letter. Today's juries amount to a form of involuntary servitude. You get your notice for jury duty, and you either have to serve whether you want to or not, or come up with excuses the state will dine to uh, accept. Now, most productive people feel they have more urgent priorities in their lives than helping decide court cases that could go on for months. So the type of people who end up serving on juries these days generally have nothing better to do or for whom the trivial fee they pay is uh, is good money. And hardly that's, that's hardly the kind of person you want to decide weighty matters, perhaps even life or death. In addition, he says, many trials center upon highly technical concepts and forms of evidence, and the people rounded up from the highways and byways are simply unqualified to interpret it. 
Worse, there's a jury selection process called voir dire. The notion is to give the attorneys of both sides the opportunity to remove a few individuals from the jury who might be biased against their case, thus ensuring a more unbiased jury. But Doug Casey says, in practice, it's an interrogation process. That's what it is. That's all it is. It's an interrogation process that that helps to uh, ensure, helps the lawyers ensure that they get a jury that will believe whatever they tell them. And that usually means that anyone enforcing, uh, that usually means anyone exhibiting the least bit of independent thinking is going to be removed from the jury. That's sad. Anybody who thinks value or who values uh, justice over law enforcement is going to get removed and never serve on a jury. So the result is the juries of today, the quality of those juries is likely several standard deviations below what it should be. Any intelligent person has opinions, and in this day of the Internet, almost any person's opinions are very easy to find out. So no matter which way your opinions line up one way or the other, somebody isn't going to like them. So you won't make it past Wadire. Now, both the prosecution and defense like to see malleable jurors with easily influenced minds. As a result, the typical juror has no opinions other than those on the weather, sports, and American Idol. People who think in concepts are weeded out as troublemakers. I actually had a, a, a lawyer tell me this as I was attending the uh, Bundy trial in Las Vegas a few years ago. We were sitting there watching the jury selection process. And, you know, I, I've only been called up for jury duty just once. And it was uh, to a federal court. And, um, and I really wanted to sit on that jury. Because I was like, you know, this is not an inconvenience. This is a chance, if necessary, to check the power of government, which, by the way, that jury ended up doing. But I was quickly weeded out. And I, you know, I complained about this to my lawyer friend. And I'm like, man, it just just seems like if you have any spark in your eyes, you know, you're gone. And he said, yeah. He goes, I hate to admit it, but he says the system is pretty much set up to remove guys like you. (laughs) Dang it, because I'm one of the people who really wouldn't try to get out of jury duty. I think it's that important. And I think people who understand, you know, what the jury can do and the power of the jury would, would, would appreciate that. Nonetheless, the process makes a shambles out of the concept of a jury of your peers, says Doug Casey. And the type of people they rope into jury duty wouldn't likely be the peers of anyone now reading this. So he says, if I were facing a trial, I would much rather be tried by 12 people randomly selected out of a phone book than by the type of people who get selected for jury duty. If we're to have juries, they ought to be truly juries of our peers, people who can understand you and the facts pertaining to your case. But he says we're far from an ideal system. It's worse than arbitrary, given that most of those employed by the justice system work for the state, and that it's a state versus an individual in so many cases. There's a huge inherent bias on top of the whole problem with today's stacked juries. So when he asked, when Doug is then asked, okay, well, what's the ideal justice system in your perspective? He says it would be a more equitable system if judges and jurors were professionals who had to compete with each other on the basis of their proven records of intelligence, fairness, speed, and low cost. I know there are people coming up with reasons, right? I, I got to disagree with that, but why would you not want somebody who is extremely intelligent, fair, speedy and can save you money by by deciding things quickly instead of dragging it out over hours and hours of of, uh, arbitration just 
Think about it. He says the victim and the accused would mutually agree on the judge and jury or arbitrators. Separating justice and state would help eliminate the state's ability to prosecute phony, made-up crimes, especially crimes with no victims. There needs to be an actual victim to press charges if the state can't be party to a case. That alone would eliminate the wasted resources and trashed lives resulting from the U.S.'s various wars against victimless crimes. No one could be criminally prosecuted for having unorthodox sexual preferences or using unpopular drugs or drinking on Sunday or smoking in a private establishment or for evading taxes. It might surprise Americans to know that tax evasion is a civil, not a criminal matter in most countries. Most legal actions focus on matters of tort and breach of contract. And it's important to keep those laws simple and few so ignorance of the law is impossible. In fact, he says, ideally, there's just two great laws that you need to observe. Do all that you say you're going to do. Don't aggress against other people or their property. But the point is that justice has to do with righting actual wrongs that have been done to people, not just enforcing laws or exacting arbitrary punishments. Today, justice means enforcing the will of politicians and bureaucrats. A proper system of justice, he says, would focus on making the victim whole, not just arbitrarily punishing the aggressor. With privatized justice, someone would accuse another, both sides would choose an arbitrator, professional or otherwise, and those two arbitrators would agree on a third to make sure there were no tied votes. They would look at all the facts, not just the arbitrary subset of facts allowed by legal precedent and state machinations. So that decision wouldn't be about punishing anyone, but about making the harmed party whole again. Can you see the difference between what he's suggesting and what our current system exists of? Under the system that Doug Casey's describing, the key concepts are justice and restitution, not just punishment. Punishment, if you think about it, rarely serves any useful purpose. It just gives vent to base and reactive emotions. It may set a good example to deter future miscreants, but it definitely sets a bad example for society as a whole by institutionalizing and justifying cruelty. So the next question that he's asked is, well, is there any hope for the current justice system? Listen to this answer. He says the whole system is highly politicized, which is only natural for something run by the state. Unfortunately, as the country increasingly looks to government as a solution, your only choice being to choose between so-called right and left politics, that's going to make the current legal system even more dysfunctional in every way I can think of. Pretty crazy stuff. And there's some very serious implications here, but he says... More people are being convicted under ridiculous applications of the securities laws, tax laws, and more. The only area, in fact, where you're actually seeing more rational and and freer thinking is in the area of drug laws. And it's becoming clear to even the dimmest legislators and jurists that they're as stupid and destructive as were those against alcohol during prohibition. So somebody needs to push the reset button, he says, and restore justice as its guiding principle, because right now our legal system is rotten to the core. And that's a distortion that can't be corrected easily or painlessly. Unfortunately, he says, it seems as though the very worst people uh, are the ones who have their fingers on the great reset button. So there's some food for thought. You don't have to accept any of it. I'm okay if you just dismiss me out of hand. This sounds like some jailhouse lawyer going on. I think it's an intriguing idea, and and I'm willing to risk the possibility it's going to make some people uncomfortable. Now, I'm going to just hazard a guess 
Some of the people who will be most uncomfortable by this uh, possibility would include include those who work within that system. Be they police or jailers or clerks or judges or attorneys or caseworkers or basically anyone employed by the state. So it's it's not to say that they're bad people. I'm just saying that uh, you know when your income depends on this this system staying the way it is, I can see why a person would be you know more inclined to stick with it. Let's stay the course and see if it straightens itself out. We know it's not going to straighten itself out. But at least we can explore some of the different opportunities. I don't know about you, but I find it really encouraging that there are multiple examples, not just of people who came before us, but even currently, of places where people are able to work out differences without having to uh, take it to a court of law. So I hope you'll give it some consideration again. You don't have to agree. But I think if, if we're serious about remaining free, at some point we've got to either... Uh, build something that parallels or bypasses the current corrupted system or build something better that people obviously see and go, yeah, why would I choose anything less? Thank you once again for tuning in to the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and this is the America Out Loud Network.